The Lord be with you. It is good to see you all this morning. Uh, we are glad to welcome back Dr. Keith Lloyd talking about the authority of the scriptures, uh, focusing here on Gospels and Pauline epistles. And just as a reminder, right, we are in, in the year of theology, right? So after a year of the Bible, now, now that we know how to read the Bible, what do we do with it? That's the question we're trying to answer this year. And faith-seeking understanding is uh, kind of uh, the skeleton of and our, our guide through our year. Uh, and we've got uh, Dr. Keith Lloyd with us for a few weeks. He's with us again next week. And then the following three weeks, this is going to come out in tidings here any day, uh, the following three weeks we will be welcoming our local rabbis, right? So Rabbi Adlin, Rabbi Spitzer, um, they will come each one week, and then the third week they're going to both come and be together to talk all about the theology of creation, the environment, stewardship, all the things. I kind of said, here's the topic and go, and they went some interesting places. So um, you won't want to miss that. Uh, as we um, prepare for our class, though, today, let us go to God in prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, another opportunity to gather as your chosen and called out people and to consider the ways that you have, um, you sent your spirit into the hearts of men and women through the ages who were inspired to write your scriptures. Help us to be inspired by that same spirit and may we, uh, may our eyes be opened uh, to what you have for us today. Be with uh, Keith and all of his words, and be with our hearts. Open us to receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week I talked about problem with authority, basically me being a person who doesn't just accept things on face value. And this week I'm continuing that idea. So I thought that it, it would be interesting to look at how the books of the Bible were chosen uh, and what kind of things they said about them back then, because they were much closer to it than we are now. We're 2,000 years out. There within a hundred years, so it's quite different, isn't it? And the kind of things that they said, and it's interesting that they—I uh, don't want to, you know, spoil everything—but they didn't say what you would think they would say as to why these scriptures were chosen, or what you might think given today's environment. All right, so what do we believe in terms of Americans? I always like to look at some statistics. 24% believe the Bible is the literal word of God. 24% believe it's the literal word of God, the lowest in Gallup's 40-year trend. The view of the Bible as secular stories and history is at 26% up from 21% in 2014. The largest segment believes that it is inspired. So, it seems that more people believe 
that the Bible was inspired by God rather than being literal word of God. And that's quite different, isn't it? Inspiration is different than saying that every word is exact. All right. So what do the earliest records show? I'm very curious. These people, some of them are the first to see the Gospels. And in fact, they may not have been looking at the same Gospels we're looking at. We assume sometimes because they mentioned the Gospel of Matthew that they're looking at the Matthew we're looking at. There's evidence that they are not. How did the Gospels get their names? In other words, how did they get their association with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? What evidence is the church, is, what is the evidence the church used to include writings in the canon? So what were they looking for? What were their criteria? And what was the perspective of the early church fathers on the scriptures? How did they describe them? So I'm using the approach that I started last week, which is three ways to get authority, self-proclaimed, conferred, and earned. And what I think was my conclusion last time is that only the last one really works. Yes? Because if something, I'm just told that something's authoritative, that's going to crumble like a house of cards when something happens that contradicts that or calls that into question. If it, even if it's conferred, if the person who gave it that authority to me is somehow diminished, then my idea of it's diminished. But if I've experienced it, you can't argue with experience. And I'm slower to question experience than I am the other two. Everybody is, right? I still question experience, but I tend to live by my experience, my instincts, a whole lot more than I do the opinions of other people. All right, so also using the philosophy I introduced last time, this is what no looks like. I told you I had a colleague, and she would uh, find reasons to say no for, for a lot of different people that other people didn't feel like it was a no for tenure and promotion. So if unless I could agree with her, then I would vote yes or yes with reservation, right? So I was happy to know what no looked like. It's kind of good to have a person in your life that's just negative. <laughs> and then if you can't agree with them, then you're somewhere not there, right? So an extreme opinion can sometimes give you an idea of what that really looks like. So I'm going to look at an atheist opinion of the scriptures and also a believer's opinion of the scriptures, and we're going to look at no and yes. Because if we're not prepared to answer those questions, then we're back where we started, aren't we? You know what I'm saying? Then I'm on that house of cards approach, and someone can say something to me, and I'm like, I haven't thought of that. Well, they did, so how do you answer it? All right, so we'll look at this is how it, what yes looks like. And we'll fo focus mainly, mainly on what the early church fathers say. All right, this is the Presbyterian view of the authority of the scriptures. This is from uh, some of the earliest documents in the 1600s. Although the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore is to be received because it is the word of God. It's interesting there's kind of an opening there to say that God is the authority. Do you see it? Not exactly the scripture. It says it was authored by him, but it's, it kind of leaves some room. God is the ultimate authority. And there are reasons for this. Because if you believe that it's completely accurate, we're not. Right? We're fallible beings. So even if we had an infallible guide, we're still going to interpret it wrongly because 
You know what I'm saying? I have the best rulers in the world, but do I make every cut right when I'm doing construction? <laughs> because I might have an infallible ruler, but that doesn't necessarily mean I get it. Because one of the problems in the whole idea that this is exactly right is if it's exactly right, then why are there 155 different denominations? Who all believed that they understood it. All right, so let's look at the gospel and the Pauline epistles as examples. All right, so the four gospels traditionally attributed it uh, to, but the, the titles uh, attributing them were not added till the second century. This is the no view. Papias has some knowledge of all four gospels, but only heard of Matthew and Mark. So um, he's one of the earliest writers in 140 CE. Around 150 CE, Justin Martyr quotes from the four Gospels, one passage each, but he doesn't know them by their names. He calls them the memoirs of the apostles. And we have no assurance that those memoirs are exactly what we would call the New Testament Gospels. Irenaeus of Lyon in 180 identifies the four Gospels. Again, we don't know for sure that they're exactly the same four Gospels, but at least by name. He identifies the four and quotes some familiar passages from them. But his reasoning is a little different from today's standards. He thought there need to be four because there are four corners of the earth, there are four winds. So he takes it in a very numerological kind of way. And he's the one that associates the animals with each. Have you all seen that there are different animals associated with each one? He's the one that came up with that. All right, so the negative... The no approach says the names assigned to the Gospels were applied long after they were written, so less authoritative if they'd have been put on it in the first place. And their argument is that there is no, uh, if you look at external and internal evidence, in other words, evidence within the writing and evidence from the early church, that none of them are first-hand or eyewitness accounts. Now, the early church, their early fathers agree with that absolutely, totally in terms of the first three Gospels. They'd never said they were first-hand accounts, right? Never claimed that Mark actually was there. He might have been there at Jesus' crucifixion because there's that weird story of the boy who's there and he runs away and his leaves his clothes behind. And they think, well, maybe that's Mark. But that's a Maybe but we don't have any reason to believe that the others are written by first-hand witnesses. They don't claim to be. Okay, so the question would be, is John? Because that one claims to be first-hand witness. There's a problem with that in the sense in, in, in that John ends really a chapter before the one that you read now, and the one you read now says this is by the guy John. <laughs> so wait, if the earliest records don't have that passage, then it's questionable whether John wrote it. Okay, we know, and this is agreed upon by atheists and Christians alike, that uh, Mark was written around 70 AD, that Matthew and Luke was written around 80 to 85, and that John around 90 to 95. And one of the atheist arguments is that makes John extremely old. Now, there are traditions that John lived to be like 100 and something years old, so in that sense, they're already trying to cover that base. But he would have to be extremely old to have written this at this time. There's another question in terms of 
John being first-hand experience is that there's evidence that John is drawing from sources. So you, you're like, why would you draw from sources if you were there? Okay. So let's look at Mark first, associated with the winged lion. And this is Irenaeus that came up with that idea. We'll kind of circle back to Irenaeus. It's the earliest gospel. It reached final form around 90. So it was begun to be written in 70, but... Uh, it wasn't quite complete. And it does not include a biography of Jesus. As you know, if you read Mark, it begins with John the Baptist, right? No background. It begins with Jesus' baptism. It ends with the women. And if uh, you and this is agreed upon by scholars and uh, for and against that originally the Gospel of Mark ended a chapter earlier than we have it now. And it ends with the women seeing that the tomb is empty and running away in fear. And that's it. They were sore afraid, as it says in the King James Bible. That's the end of the book of Mark. Okay, so it's very intriguing. It's kind of a mystery. Why didn't Mark talk about the resurrection? Why didn't he have anything else past that point? Um, there are some theories about that. One is that that was just not Mark's goal, that he wanted to leave it to the reader to make up the reader's mind. Sort of like um, the difference between uh, Jesus Christ Superstar and what was the other one? Godspell. Um, that, you know, they kind of left it open at the end. Maybe he was trying to do that. Other theories, uh, my professor said it could be because the scroll breaks at that length. I'm like, oh, that's about the end of one scroll. But man, you've got to sit around and figure some stuff out to figure out that's the end of a scroll. Okay. If we look at internal evidence, and I'm not going to look as heavily at each one, uh, but Mark is the ba- was the basis for Luke and Matthew, so it's really important to look at Mark. Right? They quote from him. He writes with a Latin audience in mind, and, and he explains Jewish customs and Latin terms. He, uh, and he uses Latinisms, the term census, centurion, denarius, among others. So there's evidence that Mark is a Roman Christian, or a Latin Christian. The author describes the man who carried Jesus' cross as Simon of Cyrene is identified as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Those are odd details, isn't it? Um, like everybody knows who those guys are. Um, focuses on the life of Simon Peter. So this is the evidence that they have that he was a disciple of Peter, whoever wrote it. Uh, he emphasizes the mess- messianic secret. So that would explain also this. Jesus said, whenever anyone said you're the Christ, he's like, shh. <laughs> so that could be why we don't really have much about the resurrection because he's, it's a messianic secret and he believes that Jesus, he portrays Jesus in that way. All right. And then there's the mysterious man that's arrested. So uh, some say that's probably, I mean, why would you put a story about a young man in the garden who runs away naked other than maybe that's the author? So who was Mark? This is the no view Probably a non-Palestinian Roman, and actually that's not that's kind of a yes view too. <laughs> um, no view says there's little knowledge of Jewish beliefs. He explains them, but he doesn't explain them all that well. And a uh, particular one 
that the atheist point of view says he got wrong is that uh, Jesus says a woman divorces her husband, marries another, commits adultery, and, and they say in Palestine a woman could not divorce her husband, period. So this is actually a Roman law. Why is Jesus talking about a Roman law? Now, I would say, why wouldn't Jesus talk about a Roman law? But that's one of the criticisms. <clears throat> and another one he argues with the, the Pharisees quoting the Greek Septuagint which he does quote from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Bible uh, that was read and commonly understood at the time. But these are actually, uh, the one that he's quoted as saying is a mistranslation. So the atheist view is, why would Jesus quote a mistranslation of the Hebrew? Surely Jesus knew the Hebrew version of the Bible. So the Hebrew version was, their fear of me is a commitment, commandment of men learned by rote, but in the Septuagint, it's the more familiar one. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. All right, I don't want to dwell on that very long. But another thing that is a criticism is that he gets ge geographical facts wrong. Um, the land, uh, remember the pigs being driven into the, into the water, right? Because somebody had demons and he cast the demons into the pigs and they run into the water. Well. The problem is he puts it in the, in the Gadarenes. Um, and then Luke says it's the Gerasenes. Matthew says it's the Gadarene again. The trouble is where he puts it is miles and miles, 31 miles away from water. So you've got a problem. <laughs> but Matthew puts it back closer to water, but it's still, what's it say? The first one was 30 miles and the second is five. Okay. Now, I don't know if you want to get excited about the fact that he got some geography wrong, but there you go. So, let's look at the earliest mention. Papias of Heropolis. Uh, he lived 60 to 130, so he's a very early person. He's not a direct witness to the life of Christ, but he's one of the first believers. This is what he said. Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ, for he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instruction to the necessities of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. That's mind-boggling, isn't it? Wherefore, Mark made no mistake in his writing some things as he remembered them. For one thing, he took a special care not to omit anything he had heard and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. So we do have evidence kind of going both directions here, don't we? First of all, he's not trying to put together a historical narrative. That's something he's saying at the very earliest account. Mark was not trying to do that. He was trying to just present the life of Jesus in a series of scenes that he remembered I'm talking to Peter. There's no mention of him being inspired or told by anybody. He's just writing down his memories as best as he could. This is the first account we have of anyone talking about the origins of Mark. But we do have the kind of comforting statement at the end. He tried not to admit, but he tried, right? And he had heard not to put anything fictitious into the statements. Okay. Now, what's tricky about that is this becomes the basis of the other two Gospels, right? His account is quoted by them. They also use another source called Q. Later on, I think we can conjecture 
that that Q source is what is partly what he's calling the memoirs of the apostles and is lost to us. Okay, so no mention of divine inspiration. It's not supposed to be a history. Nothing's omitted, nothing fictional. So a little bit to both sides of the debate. Matthew and Luke, they rely up to 90% on Mark's accounts. There's a book called um, The Synoptic Gospels that you can get, and it puts them all side by side, every story, every event. And um, so you can see it. Gospel Parallels is the name of the book. Uh, the two books, this is one of the criticisms that contradicts each other in genealogy. I'm not expecting you to read that, but I put it in here so when we put it online, you can open it up. Okay, so that's Matthew's genealogy. And the lists are identical from Abraham to David, but the account are entirely different from David to Jesus. After David, the names Shealtiel and Zerubbabel appear on both, only two names appear on both lists. Some argue that one is about Mary and the other is about Joseph. The problem with that is, if it's about Joseph, why is that relevant? He wasn't the father. Okay, neither of the Gospels relate anything about Jesus' genealogy or early life. Other Gospels. So they're the only ones that do. Okay, here's Luke's. So you can load it. Okay, so let's get back to Matthew. The yes view. Early church was unanimous that Matthew wrote this book. Papias, Irenaeus, Pantaneus, Origen, all report Matthew was the writer of the first gospel. Matthew put together the oracles of the Lord in the Hebrew language. Each one interpreted them as best he could. Okay, that's interesting on a number of levels as well, isn't it? It's in Hebrew. We don't have a Hebrew Matthew. It's in Greek, the one we have. What happened? All right. And it says each one interpreted as best he could. It's very, it's very human, isn't it? It's like uh, we're trying our best to interpret this. There is no one interpretation of this book. And that's what we do. There's some notes down here that you could look at about um, how perhaps the Greek version, maybe he translated it also into the Greek version, that kind of theory. Anyway, throwing that in there for you to check if you want. Pantanus confirmed that Matthew was the author of the first gospel. Here's what, now Eusebius is recording what Pantanus says. Okay. It's reported that among persons there who knew of Christ, he found the gospel according to Matthew, which had been anticipated, which had anticipated his own arrival, meaning the arrival of Pantanus when he got there. Someone left it for him. For Bartholomew, one of the apostles had preached to them. Bartholomew, they're saying that Bartholomew, one of the apostles, preached to them and left with them the writing of Matthew in the Hebrew language. So they're saying provenance of this is Matthew wrote it and Bartholomew left it for him to look at. All these people would have been alive at the time. Okay, back to our story. So far, nobody's met Matthew or anything like that, but we do have a book that was left by Bartholomew that he says is the Gospel according to Matthew. All right, so if we look at the internal evidence, Matthew is entrenched in Judaism. He quotes the Hebrew Bible. He corrects Mark's geographical mistakes. And he stresses that Jesus is a fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy. 
of evangelists is mostly concerned with Jesus' ministry to the Jews. So one of the reasons both of these Gospels get included is because Mark's is a very Roman interpretation of Jesus. Matthew's a very Jewish interpretation of Jesus. But they didn't have any problem with them being interpretations. They didn't see them as histories. They saw them as interpretations. That doesn't mean they're inaccurate. Am I making any sense? Something's not inaccurate because it's interpretation, meaning it, they put it in the order that they thought would work for their audience, which is what we saw Peter did in the first place. You remember that passage? It said that Peter ordered the tellings of it according to his audience. All right. Now, being a rhetorician, I'm like, what else would you do? When I'm getting ready to do this with you, if I were teaching a, a kindergarten class, this would not be the same thing, would it? No. I gear it towards my audience. Okay, so one of the reasons they think it's Matthew, I think it's pretty lame, but it's one of the reasons he adds financial details. And they're like, somebody's concerned with money. So he talks a lot about money. I would add, though, that so does Luke. So I don't know. I mean, Luke is the one who tells us that Jesus' ministry was supported by women. Did you all know that? Look at Luke 8. You're like, were there women disciples? Yeah, apparently there were probably about 12 women disciples. They just didn't get any press or any time. And they, their money supported his ministry. All right, but this one they say in particular, right? He adds the story of they approached Peter and said, Don't, doesn't your teacher pay temple tax? <laughs> They're like, okay, why would this writer include that detail, right? That doesn't seem all that relevant to the whole picture of who Jesus is, but it would be relevant to a tax collector. All right, let's look at Luke. The level of Greek is very high, and it's a very complicated level of Greek. If you're learning Greek, you read Mark first, because it's very simple language of the people kind of Greek. Very simple Koine Greek. You get to Luke, you've got some really complicated Greek, and it takes some reading. Okay. We know that it's the same author as Acts. Nobody's contesting that. The same person wrote both books, Luke and Acts. They both begin with the mention of Theophilus, who's asked for a version, because he says there are many versions of the gospel floating around, and I just want to set the record straight. He draws a lot on Mark, a little bit, uh, shares some with Matthew and some with that other source, Q. And he seems to have a knowledge of medicine. Again, that's a really pretty weak argument, but he does mention medical details in a little more detail, but it's not like the knowledge of medicine that you have. Even in his own time, it's pretty light knowledge of medicine. Okay, so Irenaeus wrote this. Luke, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Luke also the follower, disciple of the apostles. Justin Martyr, and you can look at the dates up there. Justin Martyr is a little earlier. says that the apostles in the memoirs composed to them, which are called gospels, have thus delivered unto us what was enjoined upon them. Okay, so they trace his relationship as being a, a colleague of Paul, which is what we see in the book of Acts. But again, it's not first-hand account. He seems to have known the other apostles. Of course, he would if he knew Paul. So, so far, what have I said? You're probably thinking, I don't remember what just happened, so here we go. I geared it for my audience. 
And my audience is the same as me because I got to this slide and I'm like, oh, what the heck did I just say? All right, Mark recorded the witness of Peter as best he remembered, being sure not to add anything fictional. He made no attempt to form a historical narrative. So that's actually pretty handy because a lot of people will say it, do, it doesn't read as a historical narrative. Like, well, Mark didn't intend it that way. Matthew and Luke are based mostly on Mark's gospel and another source, Q, which could be the memoirs that are mentioned by Irenaeus. Matthew's gospel is based on the memories of Barnabas, according to the earliest testimonies. Again, based on memories, someone else talking about it. One of the apostles, and was written in Hebrew for a Jewish audience. Luke's gospel was based on the gospel according to Paul and to the apostles' memoirs, which are called gospels. So again, we don't have a whole lot of evidence that these are the complete books that we have now, but we do have evidence that they're talking about books that are associated with these particular writers and this particular provenance. And uh, since I buy antiques, provenance is everything, isn't it? Something's either worthless or very expensive, depending on. Can you prove that Marilyn Monroe wore this coat? <laughs> and then they whip out a picture of her in it, and they're like, okay, <laughs> we're getting closer. There is no mention of divine inspiration or upon historical accuracy. The emphasis is on provenance, yes? And they're much closer in time to it than we are, right? We're 2,000 years out. They're within 100 years. All right, the authors are seen as other human beings, writing down what they've been taught as accurately as they could. So they're really kind of perceived, the authors are perceived as people who met the apostles, or met someone involved in Jesus' life and recorded what they heard. They're not presented in any way more elevated than that. So they're, record, they're historians, not even really historians, they're record keepers of the traditions, the memoirs. All right, what am I doing? John's Gospel. This is a whole other thing, isn't it? When you read John, you're like, what happened to the other Gospels? And you could clearly ask that. Gospel of John was compiled around the year 110 CE, making the author of extreme, at least finished around 110 CE, making the author of extreme age. It relies on, on earlier science gospel. So some of the miracle stories were taken from another collection. And you can tell, you know, people who study these things can tell by the kind of formulaic way that they're told. You know what I'm saying? If I'm just talking, it's one thing. But if I'm using something from a source, you can tell when I'm doing it here. The source sounds more solidified, maybe slightly in a different style, that sort of thing. All right. Scholarship shows the gospel originally ended in chapter 21, and that's the part that says that John is the one that wrote it, so it was kind of circular. Here's some evidence from a scholar saying John drew upon that other thing. Okay, so what makes John unique? Uh, just about everything. First of all, the very first lines, right? In the beginning was the word. In arcane halagas. Only God has Jesus making, only John has Jesus making pronounces with double amen, verily, verily. John's gospel, we don't see Jesus perform an exorcism, which is in Mark all the time. Doesn't use very many parables. In Mark, it says that's the only way he spoke to outsiders. 
and Luke and Matthew repeat that. John has more unique material, the story of Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the washing of the disciples' feet, and he doesn't have the Lord's Supper, which seems a little shocking, doesn't it? That is the one thing that's been handed down and argued about in the Christian church since the beginning. In his, in the, his description of the post-resurrection experience, Mary Magdalene is alone. The others, she's with other women named Mary. There are many more examples of his unique presentation. He even talks about the coming of the paraclete, the comforter, um, debate about what exactly and who exactly that is, the Holy Spirit, but it's unique to him. And the I am statements, where Jesus says, I am, um, sheesh, I'm the truth, the life, uh, what's another one? I am the door, I am the good shepherd, for a second there I blanked out, but they're only in that gospel. So a lot of people are like, where did this come from? And why should it be as authoritative as the other three, which completely agree? All right, so let's look at some specifics. I'm sure you're ready for that, aren't you? Clement of Alexandria. They all apparently had really big heads. Because, yeah, and I'm like, what is it with that? I'm sure the alien theorists are probably going nuts. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to fly through some of this stuff, but I just want to look at what he says about, this is about Mark and John. Peter, having preached the word publicly at Rome and by the Spirit proclaimed the gospel who, to those who were present, who were numerous, and treated Mark, those who were present, entreated Mark inasmuch as he had attended him from an early period. So he's basically traveling around with Peter. They say he was his interpreter, meaning that he, um, Mark probably spoke Latin. We have evidence that he was a Latin writer, that he was a Roman, so that would make sense because Peter ends up in Rome, right, from an early period, and remembered what he'd been said to write down what had been spoken. So another authority agreeing with that earlier comment. On his composing the gospel, he handed it to those who had made the request to him. Look at Peter's reaction. This is very interesting. Peter neither hindered nor encouraged it. What? What? Is that fascinating? I find this fascinating. I'm like, I'm looking at the very earliest records. And it's like, Peter's like, oh, well. <laughs> Almost like he said, what if? And he's like, I don't know. Part of it is a kind of a distrust in writing at the time that they kind of felt like you needed to have that testimony. You needed to have people speak to you. A little bit distrustful of putting things in writing. But it is a very strange thing. But John, and now in this scene, supposedly John is standing there. The last of all, seeing that, it was that what was corporeal was set forth in the Gospels, on the entreaty of his intimate friends, he inspired the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, the first time we see that, composed a spiritual Gospel. That does ring true. When you read John, it doesn't feel historical, it feels spiritual. It feels like it's been told in a kind of mystical way. It's a philosophic Piece. I've talked about it before. Um, Jesus is now a philosopher speaking to Nicodemus in the night, speaking philosophically, heavily. All right, is Paul of any help? I'll save some time and go now. But what's disturbing to a lot of people and a lot of critics is 
he doesn't mention so much, right? Here's what he doesn't mention. All right. They, uh, and it's argued over which one of the books of the Bible are, were actually written by Paul. Some of them are still under debate and still questioned. Okay, there it is for you. But here's what he doesn't mention. He doesn't mention Jesus' parents, the virgin birth, or the place of birth. He doesn't mention the trial before Pontius Pilate. He doesn't mention Jerusalem as the place of execution. He has no mention of John the Baptist, no mention of Judas, no mention of Peter's denial. He does mention knowing Peter, but no, it doesn't mention any miracles. It doesn't mention any parables. It doesn't quote any parables. It goes on and on. You're like, wow, why wouldn't he? If these things were floating around. He does mention Jesus' authority in one passage. Not I, but the Lord say the wife should not separate from the husband. So now we're back to the divorce thing. And he does quote something about the Eucharist, which sounds like Luke. But the thing is, they're thinking maybe that went the other way around. You know what I'm saying? That Luke might have heard this from Paul saying it. Yeah. So, Paul quotes Jesus' words of institution of the Eucharist. And there he goes, Matthew. And it's similar to Matthew and Luke, but that makes sense because Matthew and Luke draw from the same source. Okay, so there's no evidence in Paul of anything to do with the Gospels or the writers of the Gospels done with that all right so let's look at ignatius we don't know when he died but he uh, born or died <laughs> but we know he was martyred in 110 he was the bishop of antioch in syria i'm going to fly through this this is mostly just so you have some idea who he was i talked about him last week these are all the letters that he wrote but let's look what he says and one of the reasons he's got we, we should look to him because he's one of the earliest christian writers he mentions, all right, now, let's get this straight. They quote from these different books. That doesn't necessarily mean these books are in the form that we got them. Yes? But he does quote from Matthew and Luke. So he's one of the earliest Christians. And Acts and Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians. So Paul's letters, undisputed, right there. Polycarp, again, I gave you some details. I'll put that online. He does not refer to the older Christian writings by name. But he does quote from these books. So there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts. So from the very beginning, we're getting quotations from these books. And the letters of Paul all the way down. And then couple from John and Peter in Hebrews. These are de debated books I talked about last week. Alright, so let's add those two up. So this is up to 155 CE. This is what might exist in terms of the Bible. So we have Matthew and Luke and Acts and Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians and Thessalonians and then with the other author we have a few named are a few more named. Okay, but neither lists the Gospels by name. They do offer quotes appeared in those books. So they say they're quoting the memoirs of the apostles. Okay, so 
earliest accounts, we have some evidence that those are at least floating around in part. And it means that early Christians were reading sources from which the Gospels derive. It doesn't mean much more than that. And John is missing. So one of the reasons we know John was written later is because nobody mentions him. Does that make sense? Until later. Okay, Justin Martyr. We talked about last time. That's not his last name. (laughs) You got this name because he was? Yes, he's depicted as being eaten by lions a lot. All right, so that's his basic story, but let's skip on down to what he says. And why is it going any further? There we go. So this is up to 165. He doesn't quote by name any New Testament writings either. He calls them the memoirs of the apostles. He tells his Christian readers that they were also called gospels. So again, we don't know for sure that these are the forms, the books that we have now. We do know that he's drawing from something similar. The memoirs of the apostles the writing of the prophets from the Old Testament are read. He said, and we learn also these details about early church worship. They would read the prophets from the Old Testament and these books, the memoirs, which we don't have exactly. Wouldn't you like to go back in time and see what they were looking at? I would. I'd like to know what are these memoirs? And did they get, you know, did they get lost but the other books go on? Even in Justice Essence, people question the existence of a historical Jesus. Very interesting, isn't it? This is very close to the time Jesus lived. But Justin, in his dialogue with Trifo, it's called Dialogue with Trifo, a Jew, represents the Jew Trifo as saying, ye follow an empty rumor and make Christ for yourselves. If he was born and lived somewhere, he is entirely unknown. We'll look at that next week. What evidence do we have that Jesus even existed? You think I would have begun with that, but I'm kind of going the other way around. (laughs) All right. And he does refer to the revelation of John, which is uh, strange. 165, all of a sudden, remember it wasn't in any of the lists? And there it is. Moreover, among us, a man named John, one of the apostles of Christ, prophesied a revelation made to him, those who believed in our Christ, spent a thousand years in Jerusalem. So he references it. But he, he speaks as if this John guy's hanging out, like he's around. Doesn't he? It's hard to tell whether he means like among us, among us believers, or he means like there's a guy still hanging around. Now, that's 165. <laughs> That'd be a ridiculous lifespan. All right. He does quote from the different Gospels, and I put these in here. We don't have to dwell on them, but he does quote uh, But his quotes are not quotes. They're similar to Matthew and Mark, but they're single quotes from each gospel and from John. Interesting from John. But you can tell he's not quoting like the whole book or mentioning the whole book. He's just, these. we know that these quotes are floating around and that he's pulling from them. All right, Irenaeus, 120 to 140, lived in Asia Minor, died in 200, so we're getting later. Now, he heard Polycarp, the guy earlier, and Polycarp had met some of the disciples, some of the apostles. 
All right, so he came to know the unadulterated gospel, remained faithful his life. Let's go down again. We looked at him last week. Oops, I went too far. This is Irenaeus, okay? So he's the first one to take this step. You've seen all the others saying um, provenance, 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 right? He finally takes this step because different interpretations of Christ are, are, are thriving in the church. There are different groups of people call themselves Christians, believe themselves Christians, but they have different ideas about who Christ is. About and We've looked at it. Marcion, Valentinius, they believe that Jesus was, uh, you know, he looked like a human, but he wasn't a human. He was God on earth, and they were arguing about all these things. Okay, so he kind of retreats into the bishops provided the only safe God for the interpretations of scriptures. And this is the beginning of the apostolic succession that becomes the lineage of the popes. So it all begins with Irenaeus. All right, are we seeing how that we've switched authority here? It's kind of like they were saying the authority comes from the provenance and also the words themselves, right? This seems to fit. We'll get to that in a little bit. Not so much the authority of someone else, right? Now we're getting to like a weaker argument. The bishops decide what they mean. Okay, I've got to fly through this because I want to get done on time. But he's the one that came up with the Gospels having the four. He's the one that said there need to be four Gospels because there are four directions, there are four winds, etc. So... He came up with the models that we still think of in, in stained glass windows all over the place. And this is why he said it. For Matthew, he said, this gospel is man-like. Christ appears as a man of humble mind and gentle. So Christ is, uh, this gospel symbolized is a man with wings. According to Mark, he says it seems prophetic so he shows the symbol of the lion. For Luke, he said it seems priestly, so the bull of sacrifice. And then of John, he says, and interesting, he explains why he's confident about John. So we're still kind of questioning John at this point. But he equates it to uh, princely and mighty, birth from the Father, so a bird. Therefore, this gospel is deserving all confidence. For such indeed is his person. Okay. So the way they're weighing it out, providence, and does this seem like Jesus from what we know from these other witnesses, right? So they're using witnesses against each other or for each other to confirm each other. All right. Are you glad to see those words? I am. <laughs> and I don't mean to beat you to death with this, but I think it's a fascinating look into what these people thought was the New Testament, what they encountered. We have no evidence that they had everything that we have, the complete books that we have, but we do know they quoted from them, that they did have something called memoirs that could have been the Gospels or not, but it's not until Irenaeus that we actually get them named and identified but his reasons for naming and identifying them have a lot to do with just symbolicness 
right? There should be four, not five, because five would be wrong, but four is right. Okay, so in sum, I think there's a mix of authority here, isn't there? And I found the cheesiest shot, the one like the bishops would tell you what it means. That's the cheapest shot off the bow. But for the most part, we, we do have, um, uh, there's a conferred authority and sort of a self-proclaimed authority in the, in the providence thing. Like, if it has a good enough providence, it has kind of a self-proclaimed authority, doesn't it? Like, this was a disciple of Christ. All right. But basically, you see toward the end, Irenaeus making the argument that, like, John should be here because it's earned, right? This just seems like Jesus. It seems to be inherent in it. So he's beginning to make that argument. All right. Early church fathers believed that three of the Gospels were the writings of those who were not witnesses to the life of Jesus and the memories of those who met such witnesses. They did not mention divine inspiration. What they did relate about the Gospel of John seems more legendary, doesn't it? There are mentions of him. He's kind of like just standing around in a group of people, or all of a sudden, is he still here at 167 AD? What? The strongest evidence of authorship is Luke's, actually, because we know it was one author for Luke and Acts, and that in Acts there is someone who speaks first person. Right? If you read the latter chapters of Luke, I think it's 16 or so, they say, we did this and we did that. It was a first-hand account. So we have evidence that Luke was a witness. He, he was at least a witness to Paul's ministry. Not to the life of Christ, but at least to Paul's ministry. The earliest record, record associates Mark... Um, with Acts from the Gospel, John Mark, who travels with Paul, and also with Peter. That record indicates the author was not making any attempt to relate an accurate historical narrative. Since much Matthew and Luke are drawn from Mark, their narratives are not direct histories either, but tellings related to their respective Jewish and Greek audiences. It amazes me they weren't shy about talking about that back then. One of the things Irenaeus likes about it is each one is written to a different audience. All right, so, yeah, that's what I just said. John's gospel distance from the other three significantly was chosen because Irenaeus, he, it depicts the Christ that he thinks is. Okay. So, the decisions about the authority of Scripture depended on the general portrait of Jesus and the historical provenance. The church authorities recognized the purpose of the gospel writers and did not demand historical accuracy. Refer to John's gospel as a spiritual gospel. So, food for thought. This guy, who is a, uh, a minister and a teacher, a scholar in the Bible, uh, he says, the quest for inerrancy puts too much pressure on the Bible. It asks the Bible to be more than it was designed to be. To read a book from antiquity through the constricted lens of hyper-rationalism is obscure the reader's eyes from the full meaning of the text. And it's interesting because I don't know if I'd have found his argument very believable without going through the journey we just went through. Moreover, the Bible never uses the word inerrant to describe itself which I just showed you, doesn't. And the ancients didn't use the word inerrant. They were concerned with provenance and the depiction of Jesus. So resonance, right? So what does he suggest? The solution to take pressure off the Bible is to relocate the talk of inerrancy from Holy Scripture to the Holy Son. Jesus doesn't make mistakes. The Bible is the word of God insofar as it leads us to Jesus in this in regard, the Bible is authoritative, inspired, useful, profitable, and sacred. We can trust the church witnesses. So that's food for thought. I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I do say uh, what he says about the ancients, absolutely on target. He's right. We just saw it. 
They weren't concerned with some of the things we're concerned with. Because we get concerned about them when people expose some of the things that I just said. Yes, that maybe this wasn't a first-hand witness, or maybe this or that, right? We get nervous, so we have to just say, no, it's just right, and shut up. Instead of going like, they knew that at the beginning, dude. You're not bringing up anything new. It's kind of like the Gospels that didn't get accepted. Not anything new. Don't throw that in my face. We know that they existed. You can read them now. Not all of them. Some of them have been rediscovered, re-dug up in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, there you go. That's all I've got. Any questions? Concerns, considerations, observations? Yeah. Yes. And at the time, they really believed Jesus was going to come back in their, in their lifetimes. And so nobody was in a hurry to write anything down. They were in a hurry to tell everybody what happened. Paul talks about that. And you can watch Paul's letters change as he realizes, huh, <laughs> it's not going to be my lifetime. But in John, Jesus says, you know, some who are here now will see me come again. So they're thinking, okay, there's even a legend that John is still alive. You all know about that one? I think it's John Badaticus, but he's still wandering around the planet somewhere. Yeah, first of all, they didn't care to write it down because they thought there was a rush to tell everybody about it. And second of all, when they realized it, um, well, according to this story, then it was they turned to these people who had been traveling with these older people and said, what do you remember? What did they tell you about that? So we get their accounts. Right. So they rightly look to, um, not necessarily, I mean, the, by this time, a lot of the apostles, disciples of Christ would have been dead or scattered. So they looked and they said, well, Mark, you've been traveling with Peter. This is according to the narrative we just saw. You've been traveling with Peter. What do you remember about what Peter told you? And then it said that when he showed it to Peter, Peter was indifferent, <laughs> which is a very interesting touch. But... And it seems to be similar. Luke, at the beginning, he says, well, there are a lot of accounts floating around. I'm going to try to set it straight and tell a more accurate story. He's the only one that seems to actually want to be a historian. But if we believe the providence on that, he knew Paul. So at least he knew Peter and some of the other apostles. But he had not been there either. So secondhand accounts in all, except for maybe John, but that book is just so different. I don't It's hard to say. Exactly. Science or whatever, laws, rules, this is so the opposite of living by just human rules. Yes. That I think that is what the whole 
point of it is that that book says this is what it's like to live by the spirit in contrast with living yeah. by human <laughs> wisdom. And we're still going through that. We're still going through that. We still get in these kind of arguments. I think yeah. it's comforting to look back in history and, exactly. and go, this, it began in a very human way. And um, what's wrong with that? It's still, uh, to me, ultimately, this, right? Yeah. The, reson the resonance. And that's what's worked over the centuries. Whenever we start beating each other in the head with it, then we got problems. But if people just live by the resonance in it, it usually comes out all right. Usually? Yeah. My other thought was, Jesus chose men to do what the women were doing. And of course, the women had all those things going on in their lives that men wanted to stay away from because they were germy and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and so he takes men to do some of those things. Then he teaches the women, it's okay to learn and bringing yeah. it all together seems to me that, but you had to organize the men to do that. Women were already organized doing it. <laughs> You're absolutely right. When I was, a t I, I've talked about um, women in the Bible before in one of the other lecture series and, uh, and how much, especially Luke and John create this whole different reality for women and they, they talk about the women's support of the ministry and Martha and Mary are in John, right? So it's, um, much more focused on women. But women couldn't bear witness in court. So the very idea that John says only one woman saw the resurrection, he was sending a really profound message that a woman could bear testimony about the most important event in human history. That's pretty powerful. But I agree. What's that? still struggling way too long but the seeds are planted and I talk it, in, the, in the talk that I gave I talked about that was a missed opportunity and in the early church women were apostles women were ordained and then history happened alright then thank you all okay.